Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, well, hey, um, we are going to jump into a brand new series today, and I'm very excited about it. Um, it's actually a series that kind of snuck up on me. We were planning on going through something else over the summer, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching a message out of Hebrews chapter 6, and while studying for it, I was reading through the whole chapter, and the first portion of it kind of jumped off the page, slapped me around, and I felt like God said, we need to do this at our church. And so uh, I listened, I was obedient to the Holy Spirit, and uh, now we're gonna go through it for the next couple of weeks. And I think it's gonna be really, really good for our church. Uh, we're calling this series Beyond Basic. Beyond Basic. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, you're beyond basic. <laughs> <laughs> to some that's a compliment, to others it's an insult, and we'll discover that in just a moment. Beyond Basic. And I think this series is going to help our church take a couple of steps forward in their maturity and in our understanding of God's word and what he's called us to do and who we are in him, I really think that this is gonna help us make some progress, which is ultimately God's heart for you. I don't know if you know this or not, but God's design is never that you would stay stuck for some inordinate period of time, but God's desire is that you would continue to move forward and you continue to make progress in him and in this life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we move as believers from faith to faith and from glory to glory. We never live in yesterday's glory or in yesterday's measure of faith. You know, think of that guy who's got all the trophies up from his high school career and he's like 47 years old, still living in the glory days. Come on, that's not what God wants for you in this life. God says there is new glory, there is new faith, there is new opportunity, there is new progress available for you. Don't stay there, I've got something better if we continue to move forward. From faith to faith and glory to glory. Hence the title of this series, Beyond Basic. We don't want to stay in a basic understanding of who God is and a basic understanding of who we are. We want to make progress. We want to move forward. And small disclaimer as we jump into this series, um, this is something that's worth celebrating. So I'm going to ask you to clap your hands in just a moment. But in nine months, today I think is our nine-month anniversary as a church, we have seen 239 people give their life to Jesus here at the Father's house. Come on. Can we just celebrate that? Come on, celebrate like you mean it, like heaven is. Angels are doing backflips. God's high-fiving them with his feet in heaven. It's like it's a big deal for, for, for me to see 239 people whose eternities have been rewritten as a result of a bunch of people just saying, hey, we're going to do church here in a Masonic building on the corner of Sloton 19th. And if you are one of those 239 people, as we get into this subject of moving beyond basic, here's my disclaimer to you. I am in no way criticizing your journey or suggesting that you should be further along than you are right now. I am so glad that you are in a basic place of faith right now and you're understanding who God is and you're learning to love his word and you're learning to come into his house and be a part of a community and all the stuff that God's doing. So please don't take this as an insult, but whether you've been serving God for six months or six years or 60 years, no matter where you're at in the journey, you're not supposed to stay there. It's time to move forward. It's time to make some progress. And so as we get into this, let me offer you a definition for the phrase basic, because as stated a moment ago, uh, it could have a few different definitions in our culture. To, to some, it might be an insult. So let me offer you the insulting definition so that we're all on the same page, and then we'll go to the real one. Um, the wealth of knowledge, which is Urban Dictionary, defines basic to be this. Extra regular, only interested in things mainstream, popular, and trending, and someone devoid of characteristics that make them interesting or extraordinary. Uh, symptoms of basicness include unusually strong affection for pumpkin spice, namely the Starbucks varietal, 
a love of scented candles, which may or may not also be pumpkin spice, a longing to wear Uggs or leggings or any combination thereof, consistent quoting of lines from the television show Friends, and considering oneself fat after eating more than one potato chip. So that is not the kind of basic we're talking about today. And as much as I would love for you to be rescued from your basicness over the course of the next few weeks in this series, if that symptomatic description defines your life, I think we're going to just leave you to your own devices and you'll figure that out later. But here's the definition we're going to be going from. Uh, Webster's defines basic as this, an essential foundation or starting point. An essential foundation or starting point. Remember, we want to move beyond an essential foundation or a starting point. Is a starting point important? Absolutely. Everyone needs a starting point. Is foundation important, vitally important? You must have a strong foundation with deep roots if you're going to build anything on top of it. However, a foundation by itself or a starting point by itself does you no good. We don't want to just have a bunch of foundation in the body of Christ. I remember um, back in 2007 to about 2010, uh, we lived in Solano County, and uh, all of us remember the Great Recession when the real estate market crashed and people were unable to buy homes and loans were foreclosing, and, and it was tragic. And in our city, unlike San Francisco, there was a lot of vacant land that could be built on, and there was all these new subdivisions through the course of 2000 to 2005 that were, that were being built. Well, when 2006, 2007 hit and the recession started to take place, all of these builders ran out of money. They didn't have the ability to build homes any longer, and they left their projects where they were. And you could drive for miles and miles around Solano County, and you could see all these streets that had been paved, and little courts, and fire hydrants, and utilities that had been run, and then a whole bunch of foundations that were poured, but no houses on them. It was a wasteland. It served no purpose, and it sat that way for years. All foundation, no building. I think... Sometimes that's what the body of Christ can look like. A whole bunch of underdeveloped people that have a great foundation but keep re-pouring and relaying and relooking at the foundation over and over and over again. But never building, never building the house, never building our lives, never going beyond that phase. I want something better for you. I want you to, yes, have a strong foundation, but I want you to be able to build your life on the things that God has called you to build your life upon. And who knows, maybe your life would be the kind of structure where other people could come and they could find solace and hope and healing by way of relationship with you. And maybe you've walked through some things that they're walking through currently. And because of your life and your testimony, they can see freedom. Like, I want you to go beyond the basics of a starting point or a foundation and truly begin to build your life in Christ. And that is our aim over the next couple of weeks in this series, to go beyond the basics. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn it to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and uh, I'm going to read you our key scripture, and then we'll dive in from here. But Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 say this. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely don't, we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward. Six things the author here tells us in Hebrews chapter 6 are basic, foundational, fundamental truths about our faith. He says, repentance from dead works, faith in God, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and there was another one that I missed somewhere in there. Uh, 
Yep, something great that, that we'll get to that. Oh, faith in God. There we go. We'll, we'll get to all of these things over the next couple of weeks. Uh, today, we're going to start with the first one, and that is repentance. <laughs> Doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> Even that word just sounds aggressive, right? Like phonetically, repent. Like it just, it has kind of an angry tone to it. But here's what I believe is going to happen over the next couple of moments. We'll have some fun with this. The title of this sermon, I believe, is going to be prophetic in nature. Ready? We're calling this Redeeming Repentance. Redeeming Repentance. I think that this word is going to be a little less ugly for us and a little less aggressive. And I think we're going to see this word the way that God intended us to today. Redeeming Repentance. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. I thank you for worship today. Just a real sense of you in the room, ready to meet with us and ready to minister to us. And right now, God, we open up our hearts we thank you for the opportunity to receive from your word, and we ask that you would do what you've promised by your word, that you would change us from the inside out. We didn't come here today to leave the same way we showed up. We came here today believing that your word and your presence can transform our lives, transform our minds, transform our experience. So God, do something supernatural in every heart today as we open it up to you to receive your word and to go on from this place. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So... When I say the phrase repentance, what comes to mind? Like think about when someone walks up to you and says, hey, you need to repent, or they, they drop that word. I think that most of us see an image when we hear that phrase, and that image probably looks something like this guy right here. Repent, turn to Jesus, or burn. Anyone seen that guy downtown? Yeah, he's, he's down there, and he hangs out in all of the public places and the popular places because he thinks he's doing the Lord's work. We see kind of an angry God. You can take him off the screen, please. Uh, an angry God, uh, uh, a, a turn or burn, uh, just wait till your father gets home kind of mentality, right? Like this, this angry word. It's more of a threat than it is an invitation. But, and those of you who've been a part of church for any length of time, you've probably heard this before, that is a misrepresentation of the word repentance, Repentance is not a threat. Repentance is not, if you don't, you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. Yes, it's a natural part of turning to Jesus, but the Bible defines repentance probably a little differently than that guy does with his sign. It, it, there's two words in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, to, to define repentance. I won't try to pronounce them in Hebrew and in Greek, but uh, the Old Testament version of the word repentance means to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. To turn away from sin, not suggesting sins over here, but for the sake of illustration, and to turn towards God. That's simple. New Testament repentance means a change of mind followed by a change of direction. I was going one way, I saw things one way, and after seeing Jesus, after discovering what he has for me, my life is turning and I'm making my, my way back to him. Very simple. Let me give you an illustration that all of us can wrap our heads around. Uh, this happened to me many times. Maybe it's happened to you. Have you ever been driving downtown and you're using your maps application because you're going somewhere you've never been before? And as you use the maps application, inevitably, after you get off the freeway and you find yourself in the concrete jungle, it starts freaking out and it doesn't work any longer. And it thinks you're going one way, but you're going the other way. And it thinks you're supposed to turn here, but you, you know that you've already passed that street. And because our minds are trained now to not actually look at street signs and the obvious things in front of us and just to stare at our telephones, we just wait for our phone uh, to begin working again before we make our way to our destination. Well, inevitably, sometime in the journey, you end up making a wrong turn, right? And Siri's yelling at you and, or whoever you've chosen to yell at you on your phone if you're a droid person. I don't know if there is a person on there, but Apple's the way to go because she's really nice. And you're driving through the streets 
And I don't know if this happened to you. It's happened to me probably four or five times here. After picking up my head from looking at my phone, I realize that I am driving the wrong direction down a one-way street. Has this happened to anybody else? Yes, okay. The rest of you are just great drivers. That's cool. Um, and, and you know you're in a one-way street because everybody's honking at you. People are yelling at you. They're waving at you with one finger. And, you know, they're telling you to turn around. And so finally, after you realize you're going the wrong way down a one-way, what do you do? You flip everybody else off, and then you can, I'm just kidding, you don't do that. <laughs> no, you, you, you do the 19-point U-turn, and you make your way back the right direction. It's that simple. That, that is the definition of repentance. It means I was going the wrong way, and I turned around, and I began to go the right way. Not very complicated. Not, not very aggressive. Not a threat. It simply means a turning. So, if repentance is something that is that simple and something that is really not that aggressive, then why the accusation here in Hebrews chapter 6 that this is a concept people can't seem to move beyond, that we have to keep doing repentance over and over and over again? We've stayed stunted in our growth, in our faith journey, because we haven't been able to get beyond the basic of repentance. Here's why I think the accusation of Hebrews 6 makes sense. And it makes sense for my life and it probably makes sense for yours. It's because even though many of us have turned and we've faced Jesus and we've begun to run in his direction, it's amazing how easy it is to turn back. I was going this way and I was loving Jesus and I'm coming to church and going to group and I'm doing all the stuff I'm supposed to do as a believer, but then... A moment comes, an opportunity presents itself, and I turn back to my old ways. I turn back to the relationship. I turn back to the sin pattern, and I find myself doing a whole lot of this in my journey with God. I just got dizzy. <laughs> like, I, I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself. I found myself having to re-repent many times in my life. Tell God I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness and face him again for the same issues over and over and over again. I've prayed prayers like, God, I'm never going to do that again. And then I did it again. This time I mean it. But I fell back into it. Feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, feeling like a hypocrite. Why is that? Why does it feel like we have to relay the foundation of repentance over and over again. It's not because we don't love God, because we do. It's not because you're a bad Christian, because you're not. It's not because we love our sins so much that we just can't wait to get back to it. I think all of us understand that the moment we go back to it, we know that feeling of guilt and shame and heaviness associated with it. So it's not that we love our sin. What is it? There's something inside all of us that seems to drag us back to where we came from, to, to take our attention off of Jesus and to get us to run back to that old pattern of life. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11 uh, says it like this. It says, like a dog returns to its vomit, so a person returns to their sin. What a lovely description, right? You ever seen that before? You ever seen a dog return to its vomit? It's not a proud moment for the dog. <laughs> like we used to have a dog and yeah, there was a few times she threw up and she went back and lapped it up herself and 
There was no pride on the look of her face when she did so. It was shame, you know? She's like, I'm so sorry. I hate what I'm doing, but I just can't help myself. Like, what an interesting description for our lives. I think that happens far too often for me and for you. We're running after Jesus, and then all of a sudden, there's the text at two o'clock in the morning from the ex that you know you shouldn't respond to. There's the invitation to the party and the group of people you used to hang with. There's the old sin pattern and the old addiction and all the stuff we used to come from. And, and before we know it, we're just shamefully lapping up the very things we said we would never indulge in again. And we hate it. It brings shame. It makes us feel miles from God. No one's proud of it, but none of us seem to be able to figure out how to, how to break that cycle of turning and turning and turning and turning and getting dizzy spiritually because we can't seem to face the right direction for a long period of time. So if we hate it so much, how do we fix it? Because I don't think that that was God's design for your life or for mine. I think that when Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 that he came to set the captive free, he didn't mean for a period of time before they went back to their vomit again. I think when he said that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to set every captive free and to open every prison door, it wasn't so that you could leave the prison and then come back and get visitation rights to freedom. I think that Jesus actually designed every single one of us to live in complete and total freedom because he said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, unequivocally once and for all, not to go back, but to stay facing the right direction. So, so how do we do that? Well, let me ask it like this. If we seem to have a problem staying facing Jesus, how do we keep our gaze and our life from moving the other direction? I'm gonna give you three words. And these three words have radically changed my journey and my experience with God. These three words, I promise you, if you put to practice, can break the cycle of repetitive repentance in your life. It's gonna sound simple, but I promise you it works. Fix your eyes. Fix your eyes. Stay focused on Jesus. Let me explain. Um, for a period of about five years, I begged my wife to let me get a motorcycle. I, 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 we tr I tried everything. I like showed her pictures of really good looking men on motorcycles and how it added to their attractiveness. Um, you know, I, I started, you know, putting screensavers on her phone of Harleys. Like I did everything I knew how to do to get her to, and she just would not budge. When we had kids, it got even worse. She's like, really? You think I'm gonna let you get a motorcycle and die now that we have these little babies that rely on you for everything? And I'm like, okay. So for five years, I could not move the needle in my favor. Uh, but then three years ago, my dad and I were having a conversation and my dad was about to turn 60 years old. Shout out to my father somewhere in the room. Love you, dad. And uh, my dad said to me, wouldn't it be cool 
if on my 60th birthday, as we celebrated, we were going to, to Hawaii together as a family, he said, wouldn't it be cool to rent motorcycles and ride up along the cliffs in Maui? And I'm like, yes, that would be amazing. He's like, well, mom won't let me get a motorcycle. I'm like, well, my mom won't either. She won't let me get one, so what are we going to do about this? He's like, well, let's go to work. So I went to my wife, and I said, listen, it's no longer about me. It's my father. He's turning 60. He's near death. Like, this is his death wish, all right? Come on. <laughs> he just wants to ride motorcycles in Hawaii with the only son he has. Are you going to keep him from enjoying the last wish of his life? Like, come on. So after weeks of guilt tripping, my wife finally agreed, and my, mo my mother finally agreed for my dad, to let us get our motorcycle licenses not a motorcycle, just a license, so that we could rent motorcycles when we were in Hawaii. And uh, they forced us to go to the CHP safety training course because apparently if you go to the CHP safety training course, uh, there's a smaller likelihood of a fatality. So we're like, cool, we'll do it. So I rent this, uh, or excuse me, I, I purchased these, uh, these tickets or membership or whatever to the CHP Academy uh, for a weekend. And my dad and I go, and we take a bunch of written tests, and we ride around on these little motorcycles in a lot, and we learn how to not die on a motorcycle, which was great. I'm still here. Hey. But I remember while we were training, there was a phrase that the motorcycle training lady, which, by the way, uh, if you picture a woman who drives a Harley uh, and, you know, what that woman looks like, it's exactly that woman. Like, you know, she was at a diner, probably smoking a cigarette every five minutes, like, honey, you need to get over here and turn your motorcycle. Like, but I hear her voice in my head all the time when I'm on a motorcycle, and here was the phrase. The phrase was, look through the turn. Look through the turn. See, when you're on a motorcycle... Um, and you find yourself having to take a sharp turn or if somebody pulls in front of you and you need to move the motorcycle to a different direction, uh, your eyes and in your human nature, your, your, the way you're wired, you want to look forward at the danger that lies in front of you. But instead of looking at the danger in front of you, in order to get a motorcycle and your body to move, you can't look at what's in front of you and where you're going. You need to look at where you want to go. And if you look at where you want to go, the bike will follow. She said, if you would just find the target where you'd like to end up, then the rest of you will follow your eyes. And so I've been riding many times in my life where I've been coming around a, tur a turn and someone will come in a little wide on the, on the turn or maybe I've taken a turn a little bit too fast. And in that moment, I hear the cigarette lady in the back of my head and she says, look through the turn. And so I, instead of looking straight ahead, I look at where I want to go, and as I look where I want to go, the rest of my life follows. Let me say it like this. If you're heading towards something you don't want to head towards, you don't look at it, you set your eyes on a different target so that you can end up at your desired destination. Let me give you a phrase. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Your, what, wait, what was the phrase? Put it on the screen for me. There you go. You will run in the direction of your gaze. What a beautiful statement. There you go. You will run in the direction of your gaze. What you're looking at, follow me, will determine where you're going. Before you turned your life away from God, you turned your gaze away from God. Remember, your life follows your gaze. Your body follows your eyes. Before your complete spiritual journey was turned the wrong direction, it started with a gaze. 
It started with you looking away from Jesus and looking at something else. And that gaze began to take you out. So, if you find yourself in this cycle where you're constantly turning your back on God, then we need to learn how to, ready, those three words, fix our eyes on Jesus. If we can learn to fix our gaze, then we don't have to worry about the rest of our life. Let me prove it to you. Hebrews chapter 12. A few verses after, the same writer of Hebrews 6 uh, tells us that we are guilty of having to repeat repentance. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses in the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. We do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, I'm going to nerd out on you for just a moment because this word in the Greek, fix your eyes, is the word aphoreo, and here's what it means. To turn the eyes away from something and to focus on something else. Does that definition sound hauntingly similar to anybody else but me? Repentance is turning from one direction and going another direction. Fixing your eyes is turning from your attention over here to your attention over there. Direction and attention. Virtually the exact same thing. But here's the difference between the two scriptures. Hebrews 6 is an accusation. Hebrews 12 is an antidote. Hebrews 6 tells you the problem you're facing Hebrews 12 tells you how to overcome that problem. How to no longer repeat the cycle of repentance over and over and over again. Let me give you an illustration. It's going to help everybody out. Seth, where are you at? Let me borrow you, sir. Come on up here real quick. Give it up for Seth, the amazingly good-looking New Yorker with a great accent. Seth um, is a, I'm going to move this out of the way, is, is a fast individual. He can run at the speed of light. And uh, I've played basketball with Seth, and I haven't been able to keep up with him because he's like 15 years younger than me, but also because he's a quick runner. So, Seth, could you just do me a favor, and could you display for the people how fast you can run from there to me? All right, ready? Don't trip over that cord. On mark. Get set. Go. Really? That's what you got? It's your back. <laughs> I promise you he's a fast runner. Now... If Seth doesn't have anything holding him down, he can run as fast as he wants, probably for a really long period of time, because he's free to do so. But what if I took Seth and I said, hey, Seth, um, I'd like you to do a little bit of running. And uh, before you run, I'm going to just strap a couple of these guys onto you real quick. If you could, uh, thank you, sir. Oh, I can get the other one. It's fine. Just put these around your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, put them around your shoulders real quick. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Did you work out this morning? <laughs> I set up the church. That's what I did. Now, the Bible says that there is something that keeps Seth from running at the pace in which he was intended to run. And that is sin. He said, let us set aside the sin. Let us cast aside and strip off the sin that entangles us and that slows us down in this race. Without this, Seth can run as fast as he wants. But the second I begin to load some sin onto Seth, 
Some of the sins that he struggled with, you know, he's one of those guys that had an ex-girlfriend that picked up the phone and texted him at 2.30 in the morning and he fell into it. And uh, he's also one of these guys that, uh, you know, he used to party a little bit. No, stay still, stay still, stay still. Don't go anywhere yet. And, uh, you know, then, then he's got an anger issue that, gosh, if you were to, I mean, he's from New York. You know how those people are. And <laughs> he's got all this garbage in his life. And it doesn't matter that he wants to run. He just, he just can't move at the pace he was intended to move in any longer. It slows him down. It, it keeps him stuck. And Hebrews 6 would say, come on, Seth. You've been serving Jesus for how long? And you're still carrying this garbage? Like, bro, you, don't you know better? Break up with her and knock that off and stop. And come on, man. You should be further along on the journey than you are right now. But he's just struggling, and he's getting tired. He's ready to quit, and his seat sits vacant sometimes in church because he can't stomach the idea of hanging out in the presence of God because he's carrying a whole bunch of stuff he wasn't intended to carry. He's got all this weight. Is this resonating with anybody else this morning? This is where so many people live. And then they beat themselves up because they think, I should be further by now. I should be more committed by now. Why do I keep falling back into that same thing over and over and over again? I just got all this stuff holding me back. But Hebrews 12 says, hey, 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 I get it. I understand you've been in this for a bit. You've repeated this cycle. I understand that addiction, that temptation. Yeah, I know where you came from, but I have a solution for you. Here's the solution. If you will just fix your eyes, if you will just look at Jesus, if you will stay laser focused on Jesus, you can set those weights down and you can begin to run again. Seth, run to me one more time. Come on, please. There we go. See, all of a sudden he's limber, he's happy, he's joyful. Get down, sit in your seat. Okay, yeah. If you would just fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, if I left you here, be like, that's awesome. Fix my eyes on Jesus. That sounds pretty. That sounds poetic. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> you ever read these phrases sometimes in the Bible and you're like, yeah, get a tattoo, fix my eyes. I don't know what it means. <laughs> like practically, what does it look like to actually fix my eyes on Jesus? Because if we don't give you that, like it's a great concept, but there's no handles to it. So, so, so let me help you a little bit this morning. My wife and I, we've been reading uh, and, and listening to a lot of this guy named Robin Sharma. He is a, uh, a life coach, and he coaches billionaires and professional athletes, basically everything I want to become one day. And uh, he, he's written a book called The 5 A.M. Club and some other books, and really, really great leadership teaching. And he's got a podcast and some other stuff that we've been, we've been checking out. And he seems to really like this phrase, and it's a phrase that we've adopted around our, ha our household. It's monomaniacal focus. Monomaniacal focus. And, and, and the phrase monomania, or the word monomania, I'm going to give you a de definition for it so we're all on the same page because I'm sure you don't use that every day in your, in your speech. If you do, you're way smarter than me. Uh, but monomania means an inordinate or obsessive zeal for a single thing. He explains in his teachings and in, in, in his writings that there is a common thread among the most successful people on the planet, those who have changed history, those that 
we're the first movers in a, in a certain sphere or those that have gone on to do great things, they all have this common thread, this trait in common. It is monomaniacal focus. The ability to put on blinders and say, I am focused on this thing and this one thing only. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is going to distract me. Until I see this thing come to pass, I'm going to run after it with every ounce of my being and every ounce of my energy. This is what I'm all about. Well, if we take his concept and we apply it to Hebrews chapter 12, here's what it means. Jesus is not something that you simply add to your life. He's not something that you attend on Sunday or on a Wednesday night if you come to group and then occasionally a pursuit gathering when we pray together, which by the way, you should be here and it's gonna be amazing on Tuesday night. But he's not just something you schedule into your life. He is your life. He's at the center of every relationship. He's at the center of every decision. He's at the center of your future. He has your yes before he asks the question. Like, my whole life revolves around, around Jesus. Hit myself in the face with the microphone. I got really excited. Ah! That's what it means. It means that I am so laser focused on Jesus that I wouldn't dare take a step in that direction or make that decision without first consulting him. He is everything to me. I'm fixing my eyes. I am laser focused on Jesus. Now, even that is a bit ambiguous. And that's where I had this sermon ended a couple of days ago. But I had some friends over at the house on Friday night. We were doing a marriage group with a number of uh, young married couples at the house. And I was, I was still feeling like, ah, I just don't feel like there's, there's anything practical to leave people with in this. And so I asked the room and I said, hey, guys, I need some help with the sermon this weekend. I'm trying to get some, some ideas that maybe practices, best practice, that people would say, this is how I, I fix my eyes on Jesus during the week. This is how I stay focused on Jesus. Like, can you guys offer me up some stuff? And because I love you and because they love you, I have a list of things here. I'm gonna read this out as we land the plane here in just a moment. And very practically, this is what it looks like in the life of an individual who does not want to repeat repentance over and over and over again, but wants to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. If you have to constantly repent for a lack of prayer or reading the word, then fixing your eyes on Jesus means refusing to look at anything else, a computer screen, emails, news, Instagram, Facebook, or anything until you first spent time with Jesus. If you have to constantly repent for a secret sin pattern, fixing your eyes on Jesus means opening up to another believer or a mentor that you trust about it and asking them to pray with and for you until you see victory in that area. If you have to constantly repent for anger, fixing your eyes on Jesus means memorizing scripture like Galatians chapter five and praying for an increase of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control so that when you're faced with a situation that would normally provoke you to anger, you instead are filled with the fruit of the spirit and you exercise patience and self-control. If you have to constantly repent for sexual sin with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, fixing your eyes on Jesus means caring more about your purity, your relationship with God, and the call on your life than you do about the physical gratification you find in that relationship and taking every necessary step, even if that means severing the relationship in order to fully pursue Jesus. If I have to constantly repent for making the wrong decisions and going down the wrong roads, fixing my eyes on Jesus means getting into a group and surrounding myself with a multitude of godly counsel that I can consistently count on to help me make the right decisions. If I have to constantly repent for complaint, fixing my eyes on Jesus means thankfulness, writing out, speaking out, and declaring all the good things God has done in my life and in the lives of those I love, knowing that gratitude is the very gateway to God's presence. If I have to repent for selfishness all the time, fixing, fixing my eyes on Jesus means committing to pray for someone else's needs on a 
consistent basis and getting my eyes off of myself and onto others so that I can serve them. And if I have to repent constantly for worry and fear and anxiety, fixing my eyes on Jesus means worship. Turning on some or coming to church and lifting up my voice, knowing that when I begin to worship Jesus and magnify him, my problems pale in comparison to his grandeur and I find peace. This is what fixing our eyes on Jesus looks like. And as we would have suggested in our last series, there's some fruit when you repent like that. There's a byproduct when we fix our eyes on Jesus. When we do this, we experience forgiveness, steadfastness, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, restored joy, restored purity, restored confidence, nearness to God, and a peace that passes all understanding. This is what all of us want. We don't want to repeat the cycle over and over again. We want to see it break. We want to stay focused on Jesus, and we want the things that only he offers. How do we get it? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your gaze again. Listen, if you're a believer here today and your gaze has shifted, or maybe you've completely turned your back on Jesus and you've been walking away for a season, the beauty of the gospel is that in one moment, with one look, you can reset your focus, you can reset your gaze, and you can run the race again. Amen? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.